just before we move into the Advent season with Christmas messages beginning next Lord's Day, I think it good if we finish our four-part marriage series, Marriage the Maker's Way, together this morning. Our key passage for this study has been Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. I trust you'll keep that passage before you and your maid if you are married. And we're going to look at the import, the significance of verse 32 this morning to conclude the series. Let me recap, however, that God has addressed the uh, married women in our assembly with uh, his word, and essentially he has told the married women that they ought to willingly obey their husbands, and it was pointed out that this is a willing, voluntary obedience, and it's an important way for wives to respect their husbands. And we use the uh, memory tool of ambulances with their sirens on in Nassau and the need to voluntarily pull over to the side of the road so that the ambulance can get the person in the ambulance in time to the hospital. We said in verse 33, uh, Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. The second message in this passage, in this series of messages, was directed to husbands. And in husbands, we saw in the text of Scripture, the bottom line is that husbands are to sacrificially love their respective wives. And that kind of a love was to be God's kind of a love, a sacrificing kind of love, that would be powerful, practical way to tell our respective wives that we cherish them. We think they're special, precious. We cherish them. And we said to remind ourselves of this, men, that when we drive by the two hospitals in Nassau, PMH, or Doctors Hospital, we reflect that in both of these hospitals there are blood banks. And the only reason there's blood in the blood banks is people have sacrificed blood, time, energy to give the blood. And so the hospital and its blood bank should remind us husbands that we are to discern the need in our wives and to sacrificially give to meet their needs. Then in the third sermon last week, we looked at the game plan which God has for your marriage, if you are married, for my marriage, and for every marriage. God has a game plan for every marriage, and simply put, God's game plan for marriage is oneness, the opposite of aloneness. And oneness is achieved according to God's game plan by leaving, cleaving, and becoming one. Men are told and ordered and commanded to leave their parents and to cleave to their wives because if we'll do that first, guys, then our wives will respond in kind. If we leave and cleave, then they will leave and cleave as well. And when we, when we both leave and cleave in a marriage, we become one. God's game plan for marriage. Now, today we look at the lesson that God intends our marriages to teach others who are observing our marriages from afar or very up-close proximity like our children. And the lesson that God wants every marriage to teach is Christ's relationship with the church. The church's relationship with Christ. Verse 32, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. After teaching wives to submit, after teaching husbands to lovingly sacrifice, God says in verse 32, this mystery is great, 
but I'm talking about something bigger than husbands, something bigger than wives, something bigger than marriages. I'm talking about Christ's relationship with the church. It says it's a mystery. That's not something that's uh, inscrutable, that can't be understood, that you have to have a secret passcode to understand. It's a mystery in the sense that if you read from Genesis 1, 1, 1, through to this verse in Ephesians 5, verse 32, you wouldn't get a full picture that marriage is to illustrate Christ's relationship with the church. It's a new revelation, and we get to see it all these centuries later in verse 32. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So your marriage... My marriage is to illustrate, to reveal how Christ relates to the church and how the church relates to Christ. As I cherish Beth by sacrificially giving to meet her needs, that tells others how Jesus relates to the church. And as Beth stands under me with dignity and respect, that tells those that are watching our marriage how the church stands under in obedience to Christ and cherishes Christ. And so these are the lessons, or you could bundle them together and call it the singular lesson, the singular lesson that God has for every marriage, namely willing obedience by the wife, which demonstrates respect. We talked about standing under, submitting, accepting direction, and becoming one. And marriages equally important lesson is for the husband and how he loves his wife is how Jesus loves the church, namely sacrificial loving, which demonstrates cherishing. We've talked about discovering the need in our wives, giving to meet it, sacrificing, loving, and becoming one. Now, the fact of the matter is whether we're single or married or a widow or a widower, All of our lives teach others who observe them lessons, either good lessons or bad lessons. All of our lives are teaching others lessons. And if you're married, your life, along with your spouse, will always be teaching others some kind of a lesson. And some of the others your marriage is teaching a lesson to sit at the dining room table with you every evening because they are your children. Others of us who are married are teaching lessons by our marriage by the co-workers we have where we work. They're observing our marriage. And so when we are married, we want to have a positive lesson that we're teaching. We want to have a God-honoring message that we are teaching those who observe our marriages. Let me give you some examples, just four examples of real lives that taught specific lessons. Corrie Ten Boom, the Dutch girl who survived the Holocaust. Corrie Ten Boom's life teaches the lesson of the freedom of forgiving. Or Michael Jackson, the entertainer. Michael Jackson's life teaches us the lesson that big talent can be associated with big issues. Or Thomas Edison. His life teaches the lesson that trying and failing and trying and failing can lead to startling inventions. Or Billy Graham's life. That life teaches us the lesson that staying humble and true to a message can change the world. 
And so if you are married, then the lesson which your married life is supposed to teach others who are on looking is twofold. Number one, Christ loves and cherishes the church, and the husband ought to be able to say, Christ loves and cherishes the church. Check out how I love and cherish my wife. Second lesson, the church willingly obeys and respects Christ. And a wife should be able to say with integrity, check out how I willingly obey and respect my husband. Our lives and our marriages teach lessons. Marriage teaches two lessons. One lesson is for everyone who has any knowledge of a particular marriage, and that lesson is the church obeys and respects Christ. And Christ sacrificed to love and to cherish his church. The other lesson is for the married partners themselves. We live out our marriages according to the dictates of Scripture, and in so doing, we are teaching a very valuable lesson to ourselves. What is that lesson? That we are to cultivate obedience and respect, sacrificial love and cherishing because the proper understanding of Christ and his church is on the line. It's hanging in the balance. It's calling for the vote. Beth and I printed on our wedding bulletin why we were getting married. The wording on the bulletin went something like this. Believing that we can better serve the Lord and better bring glory to his name together than either of us could do apart, today we are uniting together as one in marriage. Of course, we both agreed on the details of that wording, and we both agreed that if that was not the case, then we wouldn't get married. If we could serve Jesus Christ more effectively and potently as singles, then we would remain single, because our marriage is not about us. Our marriage is about Jesus Christ. And so when you think about this agreement that needs to be there when a husband marries a wife, and a wife marries a husband. To paraphrase the Old Testament prophet Amos in chapter 3, verse 3, Amos wrote, two persons can only walk together if they've come to agreement, and if they regularly meet to discuss their agreement on why they are walking together. For 36 years now, by God's grace, Beth and I have walked together in our marriage serving the Lord. We understand that when you drill down deep enough, we understand that our marriage is for the Lord and not merely for us. For 36 years now, we have tried to serve the Lord, whether inside our house with our children or outside of our house in public, we have sought to serve the Lord such that the Lord Jesus Christ gets all of the credit for what we do. For 36 years now, we have tried to add value to each other's ministries. We do many ministries together, but Beth has some ministries that I'm not involved in, and I have some ministries that she's not involved in. But to the best of our ability, we have prayerfully tried to add value to each other's ministries. We have tried to make each other's ministries better than they would have been if 
we were both single. And so with these understandings, Beth and I have often met together over the years for the purpose of determining if we are on or off track with our stated purpose for getting married. Again, that purpose in the bulletin, believing that we can better serve the Lord and better bring glory to his name together than either of us could do apart. Today, we are uniting together as one in marriage. That's why we got married. Now, the obvious thing, (laughs) Beth and I are not the same people that we were 36 years ago. And the obvious thing is that we're all changing. None of us will be the same person in five years' time that we are this morning. The issue is, will we be changing to be more positive, or will we be changing to be more negative? Will we be changing to be more like Jesus, or will we be changing to be less like Jesus? Why did you get married? That's a very personal question with a very personal answer. Why did you get married? If you didn't identify a purpose before you got married, could you identify a purpose with your husband or with your wife over a cup of tea or over a quiet meal, holding hands on a couch, sitting by the beach? Could you arrive at a purpose after the fact as to why you believe God had you to marry each other? That would be a good exercise. And those of you who did marry with a purpose, you knew what your purpose was when you got married. It was crystal clear why you were getting married. Have you checked in on that purpose lately with your mate? Have you said, how are we doing fulfilling the purpose we stated and identified when we got married? How are we doing? Course correction necessary? Repentance necessary? That would be an exercise that would be well worth doing. On August the 6th, 1983, Beth and I were married. Her father officiated in front of 600 witnesses. (laughs) We didn't feed them all. (laughs) Just sandwiches and peanuts, you know. Because her daddy pastored a very large church, and he couldn't say, well, you're invited to my daughter's wedding, but you're not. So everybody was invited, and guess what? Everybody came. It was one of the hottest days in Michigan history. (laughs) And the church was not air-conditioned. She may have thought I was swooning for her, but I almost passed out from the heat. (laughs) I've been swooning for you ever since. So we got married on August 6th on a very hot day in Michigan. And at some point in the ceremony, her daddy asked me, will you do such and such and so and so? And I said, I do. I will. And another point, he turned to his daughter, Beth, and said, do you such and such and do you so and so? And she said, I do. But you know what? The instant both of us said, I do, before God to each other and 600 witnesses, the instant we both said, I do, Satan said, no, you don't. Because Satan hates marriage. And he attacks marriage. And when we said, I do, Satan said, no, you don't. And since August 6, 1983, 
And still right up to today, Satan has been working against our better being than being single service of the Savior. Working against our better than being single bringing of glory to God. Working against our being in agreement with each other. Working against our regularly evaluating how well our marriage's purpose is being fulfilled. Against our marriage's lesson being the lesson of loving and cherishing and obeying and respecting. Satan's been working against God's game plan of oneness being realized in our lives. God, God's purpose of me leaving and cleaving my parents, Satan's been working against that. And Beth leaving and cleaving her parents, Satan's been working against that. And God has given us the mandate of being one. We buy into it. But Satan lays before each of us temptations to be alone. For me to sacrificially love Beth, Satan gives me the temptation of being selfish. For Beth being given the mandate to obey and respect me, Satan lays before her often the temptation to try to lead our home. Satan has been and Satan is now still working against all these things, but he has not succeeded. He has not succeeded. He's a defeated foe. Jesus Christ won the victory over sin and death and Satan on the cross. And the empty tomb proves it. Satan is like the bank robber. When the bank robbery goes bad and the bank robbers surrounded, the the branch of the bank is surrounded by the police SWAT team. And so the bank robber in the branch has to take some hostages, the tellers and the customers. And just like that bank robber and the bank robbery gone bad knows there's one of two ways he's coming out of the bank, either with his hands up and his weapon down or in a body bag. Satan knows he's a defeated foe, but he's holding hostages until he's banished to the lake of fire by Jesus Christ, the judge. And in the course of holding hostages, Satan is attacking your marriages like he's attacking mine. He doesn't want your marriages to last or to be God-honoring. He's attacking. Knowing he's a defeated foe, he's attacking anyway. And so let me give the married listening to this sermon encouragement. Let me give you six truths to encourage you in your marriages. Number one, marriage is for God principally and not for us. That's why it's called the institution of holy matrimony. It's not called the institution of happy matrimony. Not that God is against happiness and not that happiness and holiness are mutually exclusive to have one you don't have the other. No. But principally, when God boils it down, when God keeps score, when God works and intervenes in answer to prayer in our marriages, he is wanting holiness. And happiness is second place. The second encouraging truth God never makes anything for it to fail. God never makes anything for it to fail, including your marriage. God didn't make your marriage for it to fail. And where there's life, there's hope for your marriage. You may have been living in bad habits and bad patterns for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 50 years. Where there's life, there's hope. And God never makes anything for it to fail. Keep praying. 
for your marriage. Keep working within your marriage. Number three, encouragement. Marriage gives God one of the things he values most, family. Persons who are related to him through redemption, who worship him, who choose to bring glory to his name. Number four, encouragement. Marriage is a God-created institution which is second only to the God-created institution of the church. You heard me right. The number one institution that God has implemented and created is the church. The second most important institution that God has started is marriage. Marriage is more important than all of the following institutions in our society. Marriage is more important than government. Marriage is more important than the military. Marriage is more important than politics and mass media. Marriage is more important than the markets, the stock markets. Marriage is more important than healthcare. Marriage is more important than ethnic groupings. Marriage is more important than education and service clubs and communities and even justice. Marriage is the most important institution of them all. Number five, encouragement. Throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, God sees his relationship with his own believers to be like a marriage. You may know the story, the true story of the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament. God told him to marry a woman who would become a prostitute. And God told him to marry a woman who would become a prostitute and who did become a prostitute because God was showing ancient Judah that their respect for God was so low, their uh, devotion to God was so diluted that they were like a, playing a spiritual harlotry. They were spiritual prostitutes to God, their husband. And God sent Hosea into the slave marketplace of sin and there was his wife on the block of slaves being sold after a life of debauchery. And he was told as the prophet, the husband, to buy his wife out of the slave marketplace of sin and a life of prostitution. And he did. God sees his relationship with believers in the Old Testament as being like a marriage. But of course, in the New Testament, nothing changes. God sees his relationship with believers called the church being like a marriage. Jesus' words before going to the cross in John 14, 1 to 3, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If you were Jewish, when you heard the Savior say that, you knew exactly he was talking about Jewish Jewish marriage protocol. In Jewish marriage protocol, when a woman was betrothed to a man, a man was betrothed to a woman, they did not come together to consummate their marriage for one year. And in that year, the husband went away from the woman and built a marital home for them to live in. And then after a year, when the home was built, the bride-to-be, the wife, was staying with her parents, learning to be a wife from her mother. And when the year was over, the groom with his groomsmen, by torch-lit procession, went from the marital home that had been built to where the wife was staying with her parents, and they had a big wedding that lasted days of celebrating. And then after that wedding, the couple would consummate their marriage 
and they would return from the house of the parents to the home that the groom built in the year of betrothal. So Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, a marital home. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again with a torch-lit procession to get my bride, the church. That where I am, there you will be also. God, in the Old and the New Testament, sees his relationship with believers like a marriage. Marriage, therefore, is on the forefront of God's mind. Marriage is at at or near the very top of the Lord's list. Marriage is some of God's best work on his resume. Number five, excuse me, number six, encouragement. Anything that Satan most attacks is most strategic and most precious to God. Anything that Satan most attacks is most strategic to God and most precious to God, as is marriage. Let me give you another example, though, of someone who is utterly strategic to God's purposes and utterly precious to God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose birth we mark and celebrate this Christmas season. He was attacked by the devil. He was attacked by King Herod. And he was attacked by the Pharisees. Oh, yes, what God deems to be most strategic and precious, Satan most attacks. And marriage is one thing that God says is most strategic and most precious. Think of the centuries and centuries of satanic attack on marriage. Over the centuries in history and even the current day, we see attacks We see arranged marriages for the purpose of wars and kingdoms in history. We see child brides. We see polygamous marriages that the Mormons had woven into their heresy and cultism. We see open marriages, so-called open marriages, where the adulterating partners are called swingers. Adultery in this country being renamed as sweethearting or having an affair. Attacks of Satan on marriage. Fornication renamed as living together. Divorce, no fault, low cost, just one of those things. Everybody's doing it. A forced celibate Roman Catholic priesthood with all of its vices. Satanic attack on marriage. Sexual immorality renamed free love, which actually puts into bondage and which actually exacts the high cost of sexually transmitted diseases and some leading to death. Attacks by Satan on marriage. Hedonism. If it feels good, do it. The Playboy frame of mind from Hugh Hefner and the whole $15 billion a year pornography industry. Attacks by Satan on marriage. Abortion as birth control. The womb is actually a holy place because God works there. Yet the womb in America is the most dangerous place of all. 50 million abortions in America since it was legalized in 1973. Satanic attacks on marriage. Incest, domineering and abusive husbands, women's lib and unsubmitted wives. And lately, homosexual marriage, where basic, traditional, 
clearly unambiguous words are molested so that a female calls another female her husband and a male calls another male his wife. God help us. And in case you've missed an even more current aberration and attack by Satan on marriage, do you realize that some persons actually marry themselves? They have ceremonies and they marry themselves. And they have a reception and they celebrate marrying themselves. Google it. Marrying yourself. And so marriage is so strategic and so precious to the Lord God who made it that Satan most attacks it. And so please know that when you are experiencing opposition in your marriage, it's par for the course. You're in a battleship when you're married, not on a cruise ship. Please know that your marriage is worth investing in. What would happen if every week you spent part of a day enjoying your mate, a Sabbath in a marital context? What would happen if every month you set aside a weekend to celebrate your love for your spouse in ways that you can afford? What would happen if every calendar year you would budget for and carve out one week of getting away from the telephone, getting away from your children, getting away from your parents, getting away from your job to be with your beloved. Say, I can't afford it. No, you can't afford it if you don't save. But what you save for is what you want to do, right? So God greatly values your marriage, so Satan gruesomely is vicious towards your marriage. And so we need hope. If we're married, we need hope. In 1957, an experimental psychologist from John Hopkins named Professor Kurt Richter did a study on rats in water. He put rats in water that was over their heads to see how long they could swim. And on average, the rats swam about one hour, and then they drowned. What Professor Richter discovered, though, was that if a rat was taken out of the water shortly after being put into it and was briefly held in a human hand and then returned to the water, those rats would keep swimming for 24 hours. That's amazing, the power of hope. I hope you have hope for your marriages today. All of our marriages need hope, and Jesus Christ is our hope. All of our marriages need hope, and the indwelling Holy Spirit is our hope. I pray that we all will see that we have certain precious and powerful weapons that God has given to us in the ongoing battle to fight for our marriages. Weapons like Christ as Lord, Christ as Savior, Christ as life, Christ as identity. Weapons like the Holy Spirit who lives full time and the redeemed wife and the redeemed husband. Weapons like the Bible 
Marriage, the maker's way, is not a code initiated in some club. Marriage, the maker's way, is wide open public domain information in the Bible, which we can understand because the author of the Bible lives in us. You know, I have to say this. If you have serious heart problems, you would get yourself to the best cardiac doctor that you could afford, right? What you wouldn't do if you had heart problems was look at the box of Cheerios on your breakfast table and follow their heart tips as if that was enough. Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Phil, they are Cheerios, box tops, tips on marriage. The heart surgeon that can fix a husband's heart, that can fix a wife's heart, is the scriptures. Not Dr. Phil, not Oprah, not anyone else with just human psychobabble. The weapons which we've been given to fight for our marriages, prayer. Think of having the ear and the heart of the architect and the sustainer of the universe inclined to us when we pray. 24 7 365 Why? Think of it. The Christian community. You do know the Christian life is not to be a solo sport. The Christian life is to be a team sport, and we need each other. I know of couples in other churches I've pastored when I've encouraged this, I said, you identify a couple in the church that you respect their marriage as you look upon it from the outside, and then you ask them, may I meet with you and your wife? May me and my wife meet with you? And they go and they get a cup of coffee or a glass of iced tea, and they start picking the brain of the older, more experienced marriage couple to see how their younger marriage can be improved. And what happens is, when you make that a one-time commitment over iced tea, what happens time and time again is that everybody benefits so much from the mentoring that happens in marriage between one married couple and another married couple is that it never ends with one meeting. (laughs) They get together every month or every other month because it's beneficial. A weapon you have to fight the battle to keep your marriage vital and healthy and enduring is the body and bride of Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ, to be real, Say, we need to talk about marriage. Could we talk with you and your wife about marriage? That would be good. A weapon to battle for your marriage is forgiveness. God's amazing grace to receive as a husband or wife and then to give out to your husband or to your wife. To realize theologically that we have a sovereign, all-wise, all-in-control heavenly father And the only logical response to his sovereignty is to trust him with the challenges of our marriages. Trust him with the problems parenting. Trust him because he's sovereign. There's nothing outside of his control. He's sovereign. Trust him. Weapons to fight and battle for our marriages. Seeing that our marriage has a a larger purpose. It's teaching a lesson. People are taking a cue from our marriage. It's bigger than us. Seeing love (laughs) as being a choice and not a feeling. You know, feelings are one thing, but they're much better cabooses than engines. If we let our feelings become the engine of the train, then we're in a world of hurt. 
Because my feelings go up and down. But if I take my feelings and make them the caboose of the train and I let the engine of the train be the facts of Scripture that I seek to obey, then I've got something. Because then when the facts of Scripture are the engine of the train, then guess what? The caboose of my feelings will come into play eventually. When someone says, I don't love her anymore, I say, serve her. Sacrifice for her. Your feelings will catch up. When a woman says, I don't respect him anymore, I say, stand under him, respect him, even though you don't think he's respectable, and your feelings will come along. And then a wonderful weapon we have to fight for our marriages is that God factory loads predictable needs into women and into men. Remember, a thousand women in the parking lot, all with different DNA, but if you push them and ask them long enough, they would come to one fundamental, feminine, married woman need to be cherished. It's predictable. It's objective. You take a thousand married men, also with unique DNA, and you talk to them long enough, and you drill down deep enough into what they really need, it would be the shared need of being respected. It's predictable. It's objective. We can thank God that the predictable, fundamental, seminal needs of men and women in marriage are told to us in the Word of God. So I may not be the smartest husband, but I know I'm supposed to cherish my wife. And you may not be the smartest wife, but you ought to know that you're to respect your husband. So let's land this sermon. Let's kind of look over the four messages of the series, Marriage the Maker's Way. Number one, wives willingly and obey and respect. Husbands sacrificially love and cherish. The game plan is leaving plus cleaving plus becoming one. And the lesson that every marriage is to teach, the kids around the table, the children, the co-workers you work with, the persons in this church, the persons in your general moving around Nassau, the lesson that our marriages are to teach, Christ loves and cherishes his church. And his church obeys and respects Christ. Oh, to God that these truths would shape us, change us, motivate us, help us, attract us. Because there is a watching and a perishing world watching our marriages. They're watching. And by God's grace and by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and by the knowledge and obedience to the Word of God, we can give them what they desperately need to know. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for the church he loves and that the church respects the Lord Jesus and obeys him. Heavenly Father, the hour is urgent. The need is great. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around seeking who he can devour. We pray that we would stand in the victory of Calvary as a husband and a wife, 
and that people looking in our marriages would see not perfection. This side of heaven, there'll be no perfection. But husbands going in the right direction, wives going in the right direction, marriages going in the right direction. Lord, there are some who soon will be married in our fellowship. Before the month is out, there will be some who will be getting married. Give them, Lord, courage of conviction and Holy Spirit enabling to believe these principles and to put them into practice. And Lord, for those of us who've been married and we sense as the truth's been preached that we haven't been living up to these job descriptions, help us to confess the sin to you and then to our mates. Help us to draw upon the strength of the Holy Spirit to live other than we've been living. For we know that whatever your will of God is for any of us, it's possible. You never will for any of us a will that is impossible. So Lord, these are our prayers at the end of this series. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.